Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for leading us here to your house, surrounded by your children, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the opportunity and the ability to walk with one another and share our lives together. We thank you, God, that you accept us just as we are. You know who we are. You know where we are in our lives right now, whether we are fatigued and weary, confused or anxious, depressed, grieving, sad, lamenting. Uh, we thank you that you are there with us and that you do not turn your back on us. Uh, thank you for picking us up when we need to be picked up, for walking alongside of us when we cannot walk on our own. Uh, please continue to embrace us in your love. Remind us continually that we are not alone and that your love for us is unending, eternal, and unconditional. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the gospel lesson, the rather lengthy uh, gospel lesson. It is John chapter 9 in its entirety. John 9 verses 1 through 41. It is the famous story of the man born blind. Uh, my sermon title for today comes from verse 25, uh, One Thing I Know, One Thing I Know. What another magnificent story we have once again today from John's Gospel. Uh, like last week's story of the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, today's story of the man born blind occurs only here in John's Gospel, nowhere else in the other three, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In terms of the various maladies and infirmities that Jesus cures, this is presumably the longest lasting. You may recall that he stopped the hemorrhaging of blood from a woman who had that condition for 12 years. You may also recall that he had straightened up a woman who had been bent over for 18 years. And finally, you may remember that he restored mobility to a lame paralytic man by the pools of Bethesda who had suffered for 38 years. And today's nameless man from John chapter 9 has been blind, as we see from verse number 1, from birth. Young or old, he has never possessed sight. He has never beheld a sunrise or a sunset. He has never seen the ocean or the mountains. He has never beheld the radiant green of spring or the multicolored panorama of fall. Darkness is all he has ever known. The disciples' question in verse number 2 betrays an all-too-common human tendency, namely to try to assign blame. Disaster or misfortune can't befall someone, we think, unless they have earned it in some cosmic sense by offending a higher power. And so we say of such victims, God don't like ugly. The disciples are a little more refined than that. As they ask Jesus in verse number 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the easiest way for us to make sense of the universe, my friends. Rather than the uneasy uncertainty that brutal catastrophe can strike anyone, anytime, anywhere, whether devout and pious or heathen and unholy, some would say that Jesus' response in verse 3 moves us from theology to doxology. Theology is trying to understand God. Doxology is giving God glory and praise. 
So while the disciples ask a theological question, Jesus gives a doxological response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. You could also refer to this reorientation that Jesus accomplishes as moving from blame to purpose. Rather than uncovering a sin or sinner to blame, Jesus sees only purpose and opportunity that God's works might be revealed in this man. And what would that mean for us, my friends, to move today from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose in our lives and our predicaments? What if in your suffering you focus less on blame blaming yourself or blaming others, and more on purpose, that God's works might be revealed in you. How might God's glory, work, and purpose be made more manifest in and through your suffering, your predicament, than in your comfort and complacency? Remember, Jesus once said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Paul once wrote, even more than rejoicing in our hope of sharing God's glory, we actually rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So what would it mean to emerge from our anger and indignation? our woeful pity party, to entertain the notion that maybe, just maybe, our present suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is that God's works might be made manifest in our lives. The urgency of the situation, the fact that our days here on earth are numbered and therefore our mission and labor are absolutely critical is cryptically and poetically alluded to in verse number 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day, night is coming when no one can work. What Jesus says next is one of his seven great and controversial I am statements. I am the light of the world. This is now the second time he has said this, the first occurring in verse 12 of the previous chapter. I am the light of the world, he says there. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And clearly, he who is light is about to give or bestow light to a man shrouded in darkness. Jesus does something next that, of course, offends our modern sensibilities of hygiene. He spits on the ground, makes mud with the spit, and spreads the mud on the man's eyes. He tells him then to go wash in the pool of Siloam which is located on the southern slope of Jerusalem, down some rather tricky and treacherous terrain, particularly for a blind person. Scripture then says he went and washed and came back able to see. One question I have is, how? How did a blind person with mud on their eyes navigate the terrain and find the pool? Right? I can only surmise that he had help. Sometimes we are in desperate need of help, as was this man, and can only thank and praise God for those he sends to assist us in our plight. And at other times, we are the only help that someone else has. 
And we shirk not the opportunity and the calling to assist them. This man went and washed and came back or returned able to see. I once read that of all the miracles in the Bible, all of them occurred instantaneously on the spot, as it were. And that the only two exceptions were this miracle and Luke's healing of the ten lepers which occurred later on, so to speak, as the lepers went on their way. If so, is that of any relevance to you? Is it possible that your healing, your restoration, your deliverance is not instantaneous, but gradual? That instead of a blinding flash of lightning and crack of thunder, a la Paul's Damascus Road experience, that you are actually more like this man, blindly stumbling along, hopefully encouraged by others until some sort of washing occurs at some sort of pool later on down the road. This man went and washed and came back able to see. Can you imagine what his first sights ever must have been and looked like? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? never having seen anything other than darkness. And now you see a bright blue sky with puffy white clouds. You see green grass, brown rocks and sand, and high trees. You see one hill, Mount Zion, and another nearby on which sits the golden, grandiose temple of God. You see other human beings, some tall, some short, some heavy, some skinny, some with light complexion, some with dark complexion. You see smiles, you see birds, you see your parents for the first time. What a miracle. What a restoration. Talk about giving someone new life. That's the joyous part of this story. The rest of it is sad, actually. Looking at this chapter, you could say the miracle was one verse, verse number seven. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. And the other 40 verses are controversy. What is it about a one-verse act of God for healing and restoration and joy that can stir up 40 verses of negative and adverse human reaction and turmoil and drama. Why couldn't everyone just have rejoice? Why does there have to be nitpicking over who does what to whom and when and where and how? There are three different interrogation sessions, if you will. One with the man and the Pharisees in verses 13 through 17. One with his parents and the people at large in verses 18 through 23. And then another one with the man and the Pharisees in verses 24 through 34. You can see the incredulous questions and demands. The back and forth bickering. The emotionally heightened dispute. Is not this the man who used to sit in bed? Some say yes, some say no. Others say it looks like him. How were your eyes opened? Who did it? Where is he? Isn't it the Sabbath? What do you say about the man who did this? 
Are y'all his parents? Is this your son? How did he open your eyes? I told you already. Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You were born utterly in sin and you would want to teach us? How often in life, my friends, is one good verse of joy and happiness and well-being followed by 40 verses of dissension and wrangling and tumult, particularly involving family and friends? What prevents us as human beings from just rejoicing and resting in the goodness that God has manifested in somebody else's life. Verse 16 ends depressingly and realistically, and so they were divided. You can actually see the source of the friction and tension, the fear and potential cost of what is at stake here in a couple of places. Verse number 22 whom you might think would support this, his parents, whom you might think would support this healing enthusiastically, responded the way they did because they were afraid. For it had already been agreed upon that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And in verse 34, sure enough, they answered the man, you were born entirely in sin and you are trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Excommunication is a powerful tool, threat, deterrent, my friends. There is no pain quite so great as being cut off from community, cut off from family, friends, church, support group, or network, or as was the case here, from the entire heritage of the people of God. That's why verse 35 is a rock in a weary land, balm of Gilead indeed. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and he, what, found him. When human community drives you out, Jesus finds you. Earlier in John 6, verse 37, it reads, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me, says Jesus, I will not cast out. That's some comfort and solace right there. And some powerful reassurance. People can cast you out. Jesus will not. He finds you. Your job can cast you out. Your family can cast you out. People who should defend you and have your back can cast you out. But Jesus will never cast you out. He takes you in. He finds you. Would it have been better for this man to remain blind and remain in the synagogue? To remain in darkness, but yet remain among his own people? Or to come forth into the light, but be cast out from his community? To gain his sight, but lose his identity? What an awkward predicament. What an either or that he should not have to face. But the die is cast. He makes his decision. Or perhaps his decision is made for him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and, where is, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one who is speaking to you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. This man gains not only his physical sight, but also the sight of faith. 
in one of those topsy-turvy reversals that Jesus is always making, which ought to and does give us pause, he concludes, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. And again to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So, since most of us here this morning are able to physically see, to confront this text honestly means to wrestle with the fact, what if we have become blind? What if our sin remains? How is it that our eyes are truly not opened? In our first lesson, which is assigned for today from 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel is sent to anoint a new king from among Jesse's sons. Samuel, though a prophet, is still blind to what God would have him see. Oh, Eliab is tall and handsome. Surely he is the Lord's anointed. Surely he is to be king of Israel and ruler of the people. No, look again, God says. Oh, surely it's Abinadab then. Nope, look again. Well, definitely Shema then. Nope. Look again, seven times a prophet, a seer, looks at the wrong candidate. And finally the Lord has to tell this mighty man of God, do not look on the appearance or the height of stature, for I do not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So finally they bring in God's choice, the smallest, youngest, ruddiest of possibilities from out in the fields, minding the sheep, the boy David. The Pharisee Saul was persecuting and killing Christians till Jesus had to knock him down and blind him. And then later, something like scales fell from his eyes, restoring not only his physical sight, but the true sight of faith and understanding, resulting in his new identity, the Apostle Paul. So what if, like Samuel and Saul, we think we're right about something, but we are, in fact, wrong? What if we think we're looking for the right thing, but we're not. What if we think we're looking in the right place, but we're not? What if we value what God doesn't and God values what we don't? We are so certain that we see and our perspective is clear and valid. It is biblically informed and righteous, but what if it's not? What if we're blind and don't know it. What if we are the Pharisees in this story, utterly convinced, but utterly wrong? Smug, smugly arrogant, but completely misguided. Possessed of physical sight, but blind as can be. That's the thing about us as Christians, my friends. We are so worldly and secular and caught up with what we see. We don't realize how blind we actually are. In the book of Revelation, the angel of the church in Laodicea tells that church, a church now, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, that you are poor, that you are naked, and that you are blind. Thinking our priorities are in order and they are in reverse order from what God would have them be. And so we pray today for open eyes, eyes that see, 
eyes that behold, eyes that discern, eyes that detect, among other things, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are persecuted and oppressed, those who are refugees and immigrants, those who are ostracized and marginalized, those who are suffering and lonely, those whom the world discards and casts aside as unworthy of anything, what the Bible describes as the least of these among us. And I believe God grants that prayer. I believe God transforms us from the Pharisees in this text to the man cured of his blindness. And I don't think he does it once in some grand conversion type of way. I believe God does it over and over and over again many different times along our life's journey. And when that happens, we are able to embrace and appropriate for ourselves a timeless utterance buried innocently within this text, particularly when we find ourselves like this man in the line of fire. In verse 25, as he is being incessantly grilled over Jesus' identity, he pleads ignorance and opts for his own bottom line reality. I do not know whether this man is a sinner. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Sometimes that's all you know and all you can say. And that's fine. Just say it. I may not be able to adequately explain the doctrine of the Trinity, the intermingling of the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, or the substitutionary doctrine of atonement, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to recite all 66 books of the Bible in order, and I may slip up trying to recite the Apostles or Nicene Creed by memory, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to understand my own sins at times, why I don't do the good I want to do, but instead I do the wrong that I hate, as St. Paul himself said in Romans. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I may not have all the answers in life, either on my own journey or to dispense to somebody else, but one thing I know. In the midst of financial uncertainty, a fragile economy and job instability, one thing I know. In the midst of terrorism, frazzled race relations, unparalleled political partisanship, debates over what constitutes truth and facts, one thing I know. In the midst of family turmoil and drama, of loved ones not doing the right thing, of cheating spouses and failed marriages, one thing I know. In the midst of a crippling past, a murky present, and a hazy future, one thing I know. That though I was blind, now I see. Though I was dead, now I'm alive. Though I was cast out, now I'm taken in. Though I was lost, now I'm found. Though I was sinful, now I'm forgiven. Though I was crestfallen, now I'm joyful. Though I was just existing, now I have life and have it more abundantly. Though I die, yet shall I live and declare the greatness of our Lord. Won't you join me this morning in moving from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose, from 40 verses of squabbling to one verse of miraculous restoration and take your stand on what God has wrought in your life by virtue of your baptism and your calling and say, if nothing else, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see one thing we all know. Amen.
through support of our ministries to share the love of Christ is much appreciated. You can go to stphilip.org, mail it, or leave it in the plate. Good morning. Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for leading us here to your house, surrounded by your children, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the opportunity and the ability to walk with one another and share our lives together. We thank you, God, that uh, you accept us just as we are. You know who we are. You know where we are in our lives right now, whether we are fatigued and weary, confused or anxious, depressed, grieving, sad, lamenting, uh, we thank you that you are there with us and that you do not turn your back on us. Uh, thank you for picking us up when we need to be picked up, for walking alongside of us when we cannot walk on our own. Uh, please continue to embrace us in your love. Remind us continually that we are not alone and that your love for us is unending, eternal, and unconditional. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon text for today is the gospel lesson, the rather lengthy uh, gospel lesson. It is John chapter 9 in its entirety, John 9 verses 1 through 41. It is the famous story of the man born blind. Uh, my sermon title for today comes from verse 25, uh, one thing I know, one thing I know. What another magnificent story we have once again today from John's gospel. Uh, like last week's story of the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, today's story of the man born blind occurs only here in John's gospel. Nowhere else in the other three, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In terms of the various maladies and infirmities that Jesus cures, this is presumably the longest lasting. You may recall that he stopped the hemorrhaging of blood from a woman who had that condition for 12 years. You may also recall that he had straightened up a woman who had been bent over for 18 years. And finally, you may remember that he restored mobility to a lame, paralytic man by the pools of Bethesda who had suffered for 38 years. And today's nameless man from John chapter 9 has been blind, as we see from verse number 1, from birth. Young or old, he has never possessed sight. He has never beheld a sunrise or a sunset. He has never seen the ocean or the mountains. He has never beheld the radiant green of spring or the multicolored panorama of fall. Darkness is all he has ever known. The disciples' question in verse number 2 betrays an all-too-common human tendency, namely to try to assign blame. Disaster or misfortune can't befall someone, we think, unless they have earned it in some cosmic sense by offending a higher power. And so we say of such victims, God don't like ugly. The disciples are a little more refined than that as they ask Jesus in verse number 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the easiest way for us to make sense of the universe, my friends. Rather than the uneasy uncertainty that brutal catastrophe can strike anyone, anytime, 
anywhere where the devout and pious or heathen and unholy. Some would say that Jesus' response in verse 3 moves us from theology to doxology. Theology is trying to understand God. Doxology is giving God glory and praise. So while the disciples ask a theological question, Jesus gives a doxological response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. You could also refer to this reorientation that Jesus accomplishes as moving from blame to purpose. Rather than uncovering a sin or sinner to blame, Jesus sees only purpose and opportunity that God's works might be revealed in this man. And what would that mean for us, my friends, to move today from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose in our lives and our predicaments? What if in your suffering you focus less on blame blaming yourself or blaming others, and more on purpose, that God's works might be revealed in you. How might God's glory, work, and purpose be made more manifest in and through your suffering, your predicament, than in your comfort and complacency? Remember, Jesus once said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Paul once wrote, even more than rejoicing in our hope of sharing God's glory, we actually rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So what would it mean to emerge from our anger and indignation? our woeful pity party, to entertain the notion that maybe, just maybe, our present suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is that God's works might be made manifest in our lives. The urgency of the situation, the fact that our days here on earth are numbered and therefore our mission and labor are absolutely critical is cryptically and poetically alluded to in verse number four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day, night is coming when no one can work. What Jesus says next is one of his seven great and controversial I am statements. I am the light of the world. This is now the second time he has said this, the first occurring in verse 12 of the previous chapter. I am the light of the world, he says there. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And clearly, he who is light is about to give or bestow light to a man shrouded in darkness. Jesus does something next that, of course, offends our modern sensibilities of hygiene. He spits on the ground, makes mud with the spit, and spreads the mud on the man's eyes. He tells him then to go wash in the pool of Siloam which is located on the southern slope of Jerusalem, down some rather tricky and treacherous terrain, particularly for a blind person. Scripture then says he went and washed and came back able to see. One question I have is, how? How did a blind person with mud on their eyes navigate the terrain and find the pool? Right? I can only surmise 
that he had help. Sometimes we are in desperate need of help, as was this man, and can only thank and praise God for those he sends to assist us in our plight. And at other times, we are the only help that someone else has, and we shirk not the opportunity and the calling to assist them. This man went and washed and came back or returned able to see. I once read that of all the miracles in the Bible, all of them occurred instantaneously on the spot, as it were, and that the only two exceptions were this miracle and Luke's healing of the ten lepers, which occurred later on, so to speak, as the lepers went on their way. If so, is that of any relevance to you? Is it possible that your healing, your restoration, your deliverance is not instantaneous, but gradual? That instead of a blinding flash of lightning and crack of thunder, a la Paul's Damascus Road experience, that you are actually more like this man, blindly stumbling along, hopefully encouraged by others, until some sort of washing occurs at some sort of pool later on down the road. This man went and washed and came back able to see. Can you imagine what his first sights ever must have been and looked like? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Never having seen anything other than darkness. And now you see a bright blue sky with puffy white clouds. You see green grass, brown rocks and sand, and high trees. You see one hill, Mount Zion, and another nearby on which sits the golden, grandiose temple of God. You see other human beings, some tall, some short, some heavy, some skinny, some with light complexion, some with dark complexion. You see smiles, you see birds, you see your parents for the first time. What a miracle. What a restoration. Talk about giving someone new life. That's the joyous part of this story. The rest of it is sad, actually. Looking at this chapter, you could say the miracle was one verse, verse number seven. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. And the other 40 verses are controversy. What is it about a one-verse act of God for healing and restoration and joy that can stir up 40 verses of negative and adverse human reaction and turmoil and drama why couldn't everyone just have rejoiced? Why does there have to be nitpicking over who does what to whom and when and where and how? There are three different interrogation sessions, if you will. One with the man and the Pharisees in verses 13 through 17. One with his parents and the people at large in verses 18 through 23. And then another one with the man and the Pharisees in verses 24 through 34. You can see the incredulous questions and demands, the back and forth bickering, the emotionally heightened dispute. 
Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some say yes, some say no. Others say it looks like him. How were your eyes opened? Who did it? Where is he? Isn't it the Sabbath? What do you say about the man who did this? Are y'all his parents? Is this your son? How did he open your eyes? I told you already. Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You were born utterly in sin and you would want to teach us? How often in life, my friends, is one good verse of joy and happiness and well-being followed by 40 verses of dissension and wrangling and tumult, particularly involving family and friends? What prevents us as human beings from just rejoicing and resting in the goodness that God has manifested in somebody else's life. Verse 16 ends depressingly and realistically, and so they were divided. You can actually see the source of the friction and tension, the fear and potential cost of what is at stake here in a couple of places. Verse number 22 whom you might think would support this, his parents, whom you might think would support this healing enthusiastically, responded the way they did because they were afraid. For it had already been agreed upon that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And in verse 34, sure enough, they answered the man, you were born entirely in sin and you are trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Excommunication, is a powerful tool, threat, deterrent, my friends. There is no pain quite so great as being cut off from community, cut off from family, friends, church, support group, or network, or as was the case here, from the entire heritage of the people of God. That's why verse 35 is a rock in a weary land, balm of Gilead indeed. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and he, what, found him. When human community drives you out, Jesus finds you. Earlier in John 6, verse 37, it reads, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me, says Jesus, I will not cast out. That's some comfort and solace right there and some powerful reassurance. People can cast you out. Jesus will not. He finds you. Your job can cast you out. Your family can cast you out. People who should defend you and have your back can cast you out, but Jesus will never cast you out. He takes you in. He finds you. Would it have been better for this man to remain blind and remain in the synagogue? To remain in darkness, but yet remain among his own people? Or to come forth into the light, but be cast out from his community? To gain his sight, but lose his identity? What an awkward predicament. What an either or that he should not have to face. But the die is cast. He makes his decision. Or perhaps his decision is made for him. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? 
He answered, And where is and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one who is speaking to you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man gains not only his physical sight, but also the sight of faith. In one of those topsy-turvy reversals that Jesus is always making, which ought to and does give us pause, he concludes, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. And again to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So, since most of us here this morning are able to physically see. To confront this text honestly means to wrestle with the fact, what if we have become blind? What if our sin remains? How is it that our eyes are truly not opened? In our first lesson, which is assigned for today from 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel is sent to anoint a new king from among Jesse's sons. Samuel, though a prophet, is still blind to what God would have him see. Oh, Eliab is tall and handsome. Surely he is the Lord's anointed. Surely he is to be king of Israel and ruler of the people. No, look again, God says. Oh, surely it's Abinadab then. Nope, look again. Well, definitely Shema then. Nope. Look again, seven times a prophet, a seer, looks at the wrong candidate. And finally the Lord has to tell this mighty man of God, do not look on the appearance or the height of stature, for I do not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So finally they bring in God's choice, the smallest, youngest, ruddiest of possibilities from out in the fields, minding the sheep, the boy David. The Pharisee Saul was persecuting and killing Christians till Jesus had to knock him down and blind him. And then later, something like scales fell from his eyes, restoring not only his physical sight, but the true sight of faith and understanding, resulting in his new identity, the Apostle Paul. So what if, like Samuel and Saul, we think we're right about something, but we are, in fact, wrong? What if we think we're looking for the right thing, but we're not. What if we think we're looking in the right place, but we're not? What if we value what God doesn't and God values what we don't? We are so certain that we see and our perspective is clear and valid. It is biblically informed and righteous, but what if it's not? What if we're blind And don't know it. What if we are the Pharisees in this story? Utterly convinced, but utterly wrong. Smugly arrogant, but completely misguided. Possessed of physical sight, but blind as can be. That's the thing about us as Christians, my friends. We are so worldly and secular and caught up with what we see. We don't realize how blind we actually are. In the book of Revelation, the angel of the church in Laodicea tells that church, a church now, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, that you are poor, that you are naked, 
and that you are blind. Thinking our priorities are in order and they are in reverse order from what God would have them be. And so we pray today for open eyes, eyes that see, eyes that behold, eyes that discern, eyes that detect, among other things, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are persecuted and oppressed, those who are refugees and immigrants, those who are ostracized and marginalized, those who are suffering and lonely, those whom the world discards and casts aside as unworthy of anything, what the Bible describes as the least of these among us. And I believe God grants that prayer. I believe God transforms us from the Pharisees in this text to the man cured of his blindness. And I don't think he does it once in some grand conversion type of way. I believe God does it over and over and over again many different times along our life's journey. And when that happens, we are able to embrace and appropriate for ourselves a timeless utterance buried innocently within this text, particularly when we find ourselves like this man in the line of fire. In verse 25, As he is being incessantly grilled over Jesus' identity, he pleads ignorance and opts for his own bottom line reality. I do not know whether this man is a sinner. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Sometimes that's all you know and all you can say. And that's fine. Just say it. I may not be able to adequately explain the doctrine of the Trinity, the intermingling of the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, or the substitutionary doctrine of atonement, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to recite all 66 books of the Bible in order, and I may slip up trying to recite the Apostles or Nicene Creed by memory, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to understand my own sins at times, why I don't do the good I want to do, but instead I do the wrong that I hate, as St. Paul himself said in Romans. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I may not have all the answers in life, either on my own journey or to dispense to somebody else, but one thing I know. In the midst of financial uncertainty, a fragile economy and job instability, one thing I know. In the midst of terrorism, Frazzled race relations, unparalleled political partisanship, debates over what constitutes truth and facts. One thing I know, in the midst of family turmoil and drama, of loved ones not doing the right thing, of cheating spouses and failed marriages, one thing I know. In the midst of a crippling past, a murky present, and a hazy future, one thing I know. That though I was blind, now I see. Though I was dead, now I'm alive. Though I was cast out, now I'm taken in. Though I was lost, now I'm found. Though I was sinful, now I'm forgiven. Though I was crestfallen, now I'm joyful. Though I was just existing, now I have life and have it more abundantly. Though I die, yet shall I live and declare 
declare the greatness of our Lord. Won't you join me this morning in moving from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose, from 40 verses of squabbling to one verse of miraculous restoration and take your stand on what God has wrought in your life by virtue of your baptism and your calling and say, if nothing else, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see one thing we all know. Amen. Your support of our ministries to share the love of Christ is much appreciated. You can go to stphilip.org, mail it, or leave it in the plate. Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for leading us here to your house, surrounded by your children, our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the opportunity and the ability to walk with one another and share our lives together. We thank you, God, that you accept us just as we are. You know who we are. You know where we are in our lives right now, whether we are fatigued and weary, confused or anxious, depressed, grieving, sad, lamenting. Uh, we thank you that you are there with us and that you do not turn your back on us. Uh, thank you for picking us up when we need to be picked up, for walking alongside of us when we cannot walk on our own. Uh, please continue to embrace us in your love. Remind us continually that we are not alone and that your love for us is unending, eternal, and unconditional. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the gospel lesson, the rather lengthy uh, gospel lesson. It is John chapter 9 in its entirety. John 9 verses 1 through 41. It is the famous story of the man born blind. Uh, my sermon title for today comes from verse 25, uh, One Thing I Know, One Thing I Know. What another magnificent story we have once again today from John's Gospel. Uh, like last week's story of the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, today's story of the man born blind occurs only here in John's Gospel. Nowhere else in the other three, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In terms of the various maladies and infirmities that Jesus cures, this is presumably the longest lasting. You may recall that he stopped the hemorrhaging of blood from a woman who had that condition for 12 years. You may also recall that he had straightened up a woman who had been bent over for 18 years. And finally, you may remember that he restored mobility to a lame paralytic man by the pools of Bethesda who had suffered for 38 years. And today's nameless man from John chapter 9 has been blind, as we see from verse number 1, from birth. Young or old, he has never possessed sight. He has never beheld a sunrise or a sunset. He has never seen the ocean or the mountains. He has never beheld the radiant green of spring or the multicolored panorama of fall. Darkness is all he has ever known. 
disciples' question in verse number 2 betrays an all-too-common human tendency, namely to try to assign blame. Disaster or misfortune can't befall someone, we think, unless they have earned it in some cosmic sense by offending a higher power. And so we say of such victims, God don't like ugly. The disciples are a little more refined than that as they ask Jesus in verse number 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the easiest way for us to make sense of the universe, my friends. Rather than the uneasy uncertainty that brutal catastrophe can strike anyone, anytime, anywhere, where the devout and pious or heathen and unholy, some would say that Jesus' response in verse 3 moves us from theology to doxology. Theology is trying to understand God. Doxology is giving God glory and praise. So while the disciples ask a theological question, Jesus gives a doxological response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. You could also refer to this reorientation that Jesus accomplishes as moving from blame to purpose. Rather than uncovering a sin or sinner to blame, Jesus sees only purpose and opportunity that God's works might be revealed in this man. And what would that mean for us, my friends, to move today from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose in our lives and our predicaments? What if in your suffering you focus less on blame, blaming yourself or blaming others, and more on purpose? that God's works might be revealed in you? How might God's glory, work, and purpose be made more manifest in and through your suffering, your predicament, than in your comfort and complacency? Remember, Jesus once said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Paul once wrote, even more than rejoicing in our hope of sharing God's glory, we actually rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So what would it mean to emerge from our anger and indignation, our woeful pity party, to entertain the notion that maybe, just maybe, our present suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is that God's works might be made manifest in our lives. The urgency of the situation, the fact that our days here on earth are numbered, and therefore our mission and labor are absolutely critical, is cryptically and poetically alluded to in verse number 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. What Jesus says next is one of his seven great and controversial I am statements. I am the light of the world. This is now the second time he has said this, the first occurring in verse 12 of the previous chapter. I am the light of the world, he says there. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And clearly, he who is light is about to give or bestow light to a man shrouded in darkness. 
Jesus does something next that, of course, offends our modern sensibilities of hygiene. He spits on the ground, makes mud with the spit, and spreads the mud on the man's eyes. He tells him then to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is located on the southern slope of Jerusalem, down some rather tricky and treacherous terrain, particularly for a blind person. Scripture then says he went and washed and came back able to see. One question I have is, how? How did a blind person with mud on their eyes navigate the terrain and find the pool? Right? I can only surmise that he had help. Sometimes we are in desperate need of help, as was this man, and can only thank and praise God for those he sends to assist us in our plight. And at other times, we are the only help that someone else has. And we shirk not the opportunity and the calling to assist them. This man went and washed and came back or returned able to see. I once read that of all the miracles in the Bible, all of them occurred instantaneously on the spot, as it were. And that the only two exceptions were this miracle and Luke's healing of the ten lepers, which occurred later on, so to speak, as the lepers went on their way. If so, is that of any relevance to you? Is it possible that your healing, your restoration, your deliverance is not instantaneous, but gradual? That instead of a blinding flash of lightning and crack of thunder, a la Paul's Damascus Road experience, that you are actually more like this man blindly stumbling along, hopefully encouraged by others until some sort of washing occurs at some sort of pool later on down the road. This man went and washed and came back able to see. Can you imagine what his first sights ever must have been and looked like? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? never having seen anything other than darkness. And now you see a bright blue sky with puffy white clouds. You see green grass, brown rocks and sand, and high trees. You see one hill, Mount Zion, and another nearby on which sits the golden, grandiose temple of God. You see other human beings, some tall, some short, some heavy, some skinny, some with light complexion, some with dark complexion. You see smiles, you see birds, you see your parents for the first time. What a miracle. What a restoration. Talk about giving someone new life. That's the joyous part of this story. The rest of it is sad, actually. Looking at this chapter, you could say the miracle was one verse, verse number seven. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. And the other 40 verses are controversy. What is it about a one-verse act of God for healing and restoration and joy that can stir up 40 verses 
of negative and adverse human reaction and turmoil and drama. Why couldn't everyone just have rejoice? Why does there have to be nitpicking over who does what to whom and when and where and how? There are three different interrogation sessions, if you will. One with the man and the Pharisees in verses 13 through 17. One with his parents and the people at large in verses 18 through 23. And then another one with the man and the Pharisees in verses 24 through 34. You can see the incredulous questions and demands. The back and forth bickering. The emotionally heightened dispute. Is not this the man who used to sit in bed? Some say yes, some say no. Others say it looks like him. How were your eyes opened? Who did it? Where is he? Isn't it the Sabbath? What do you say about the man who did this? Are y'all his parents? Is this your son? How did he open your eyes? I told you already. Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You were born utterly in sin and you would want to teach us? How often in life, my friends, is one good verse of joy and happiness and well-being followed by 40 verses of dissension and wrangling and tumult, particularly involving family and friends? What prevents us as human beings from just rejoicing and resting in the goodness that God has manifested in somebody else's life. Verse 16 ends depressingly and realistically, and so they were divided. You can actually see the source of the friction and tension, the fear and potential cost of what is at stake here in a couple of places. Verse number 22 whom you might think would support this, his parents, whom you might think would support this healing enthusiastically, responded the way they did because they were afraid. For it had already been agreed upon that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And in verse 34, sure enough, they answered the man, you were born entirely in sin and you are trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Excommunication is a powerful tool, threat, deterrent, my friends. There is no pain quite so great as being cut off from community, cut off from family, friends, church, support group, or network, or as was the case here, from the entire heritage of the people of God. That's why verse 35 is a rock in a weary land, balm of Gilead indeed. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and he, what, found him. When human community drives you out, Jesus finds you. Earlier in John 6, verse 37, it reads, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me, says Jesus, I will not cast out. That's some comfort and solace right there. And some powerful reassurance. People can cast you out. Jesus will not. He finds you. Your job can cast you out. Your family can cast you out. People who should defend you and have your back can cast you out. But Jesus will never cast you out. He takes you in. He finds you. 
Would it have been better for this man to remain blind and remain in the synagogue? To remain in darkness, but yet remain among his own people? Or to come forth into the light, but be cast out from his community? To gain his sight, but lose his identity? What an awkward predicament. What an either-or that he should not have to face. But the die is cast. He makes his decision, or perhaps his decision is made for him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And where is and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one who is speaking to you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. This man gains not only his physical sight, but also the sight of faith. And one of those topsy-turvy reversals that Jesus is always making, which ought to and does give us pause, he concludes, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. And again to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So, since most of us here this morning are able to physically see, to confront this text honestly means to wrestle with the fact, what if we have become blind? What if our sin remains? How is it that our eyes are truly not opened? In our first lesson, which is assigned for today from 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel is sent to anoint a new king from among Jesse's sons. Samuel, though a prophet, is still blind to what God would have him see. Oh, Eliab is tall and handsome. Surely he is the Lord's anointed. Surely he is to be king of Israel and ruler of the people. No, look again, God says. Oh, surely it's Abinadab then. Nope, look again. Well, definitely Shema then. Nope. Look again, seven times a prophet, a seer, looks at the wrong candidate. And finally the Lord has to tell this mighty man of God, do not look on the appearance or the height of stature, for I do not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So finally they bring in God's choice, the smallest, youngest, ruddiest of possibilities from out in the fields, minding the sheep, the boy David. The Pharisee Saul was persecuting and killing Christians till Jesus had to knock him down and blind him. And then later something like scales fell from his eyes, restoring not only his physical sight, but the true sight of faith and understanding resulting in his new identity, the Apostle Paul. So what if, like Samuel and Saul, we think we're right about something, but we are in fact wrong? What if we think we're looking for the right thing, but we're not. What if we think we're looking in the right place, but we're not? What if we value what God doesn't, and God values what we don't? We are so certain that we see, and our perspective is clear and valid. It is biblically informed and righteous, but what if it's not? What if we're blind and don't know it. What if we are the Pharisees in this story, utterly convinced, but 
utterly wrong. Smug, smugly arrogant, but completely misguided. Possessed of physical sight, but blind as can be. That's the thing about us as Christians, my friends. We are so worldly and secular and caught up with what we see. We don't realize how blind we actually are. In the book of Revelation, the angel of the church in Laodicea tells that church, a church now, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, that you are poor, that you are naked, and that you are blind. Thinking our priorities are in order and they are in reverse order from what God would have them be. And so we pray today for open eyes, eyes that see, eyes that behold, eyes that discern, eyes that detect, among other things, those who are poor, those who are hungry. Those who are persecuted and oppressed. Those who are refugees and immigrants. Those who are ostracized and marginalized. Those who are suffering and lonely. Those whom the world discards and casts aside as unworthy of anything. What the Bible describes as the least of these among us. And I believe God grants that prayer. I believe God transforms us from the Pharisees in this text to the man cured of his blindness. And I don't think he does it once in some grand conversion type of way. I believe God does it over and over and over again many different times along our life's journey. And when that happens, we are able to embrace and appropriate for ourselves a timeless utterance buried innocently within this text, particularly when we find ourselves like this man in the line of fire. In verse 25, as he is being incessantly grilled over Jesus' identity, he pleads ignorance and opts for his own bottom line reality. I do not know whether this man is a sinner. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Sometimes that's all you know and all you can say. And that's fine. Just say it. I may not be able to adequately explain the doctrine of the Trinity, the intermingling of the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, or the substitutionary doctrine of atonement, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to recite all 66 books of the Bible in order, and I may slip up trying to recite the Apostles or Nicene Creed by memory, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I may not be able to understand my own sins at times, why I don't do the good I want to do, but instead I do the wrong that I hate, as St. Paul himself said in Romans. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I may not have all the answers in life, either on my own journey or to dispense to somebody else, but one thing I know. In the midst of financial uncertainty, a fragile economy and job instability, one thing I know. In the midst of terrorism, frazzled race relations, unparalleled political partisanship, debates over what constitutes truth and facts, one thing I know. In the midst of family turmoil and drama, of loved ones not doing the right thing, of cheating spouses and failed marriages, one thing I know. 
in the midst of a crippling past, a murky present, and a hazy future, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was dead, now I'm alive. Though I was cast out, now I'm taken in. Though I was lost, now I'm found. Though I was sinful, now I'm forgiven. Though I was crestfallen, now I'm joyful. Though I was just existing, now I have life and have it more abundantly. Though I die, yet shall I live and declare the greatness of our Lord. Won't you join me this morning in moving from theology to doxology, from blame to purpose, from 40 verses of squabbling to one verse of miraculous restoration and take your stand on what God has wrought in your life by virtue of your baptism and your calling and say, if nothing else, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see one thing we all know. Amen. Your support of our ministries to share the love of Christ is much appreciated. You can go to stphilip.org, mail it, or leave it in the plate. <laughs>